United had a mixed bag of a week. A dreadful performance away to Sevilla cost the side a chance at European glory this time around, but they followed it up with a gritty 120-minute display against Brighton at Wembley to set up a date with Manchester City in early June. Injury absences, problems in all phases, and some penalty shootout heroics. It's time to take stock. Aaron, how are you feeling? How are you doing? It was a pretty exciting win today. Yeah, I think it was one of those where it felt like I was approaching doom for around three hours there, and then it ended up going well. So it's like one of those, you are realize that you're still alive at like 2.30 in the afternoon, and because of that, it's great, and it, it's one of the best days of the season, but if it hadn't gone our way, it would have been one of the worst, because I stood there for three hours and watched a boring game waiting for United to throw it in a typical penalty shootout fashion. Were you bored? I I, I can't say I was bored watching that match. I realized there were no goals, but I, I guess I was so on the edge of my seat that there was no point where I was like, oh, this is dragging on, and, and I'm not entertained. Yeah, it, it had one of those, like, I think it's one of those games where if I was a neutral, I would have loved to watch that game because it just has that KG, like, who's going to win, high stakes. Um, I mean, if I was a neutral, I'd probably end up taking Brighton's side because you want to see the underdog win and you're waiting to find out what's going to happen next. But because I wanted United to win from the start to the end, and I was so pessimistic that they would, especially one after Thursday and two, given the recent record with penalties and long drawn cup matches and matches against pressing sides. Um, because of all of that, it felt very tedious and nervy throughout. So yeah. Yeah. But by, by the end I was, it, it was a big feeling of relief no and doubt. like Lindelof smashed that penalty and it was awesome. Yeah. So yeah, today was great. Thursday less. So as I understand it, you rewatched the Sevilla match uh, or, or watched it. I did replay. watch the match this morning, which tells you how much I love you guys listeners because that was wretched, horrific to rewatch. Wretched performance. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's really one of those super typical games. It's like Sevilla read a textbook of like how to play United. And they just showed up to do all the things. And everything went their way. Um, you see them pressing really high from the start. Forcing De Gea into difficult decisions. De Gea tries to play short. Makes a bad decision. Then they put United in a losing game state. They force United to break them down or, you know, you you break us down or you're out. And those are the worst games for United because they get fewer opportunities to take advantage of transitional game states. They have more focus on playing out of the press and, you know, being able to press the opposition and enforce a level of domination over the match all the things that they're just not very good at. And we've seen this many times this season now where United will go into a losing game state against a good team that's pressing well. Um, and because of all of these different issues they have that all compound in the same game states, it looks really, really bad when they're off it. Um, and, and I think that's a decent summary of what played out here, really. Um, it's... It's really one of those games where, you know, if Sevilla didn't have that extremely lucky Maguire own goal in the first leg, United possibly get out of this pretty comfortably because 
they can't bully United the same way that they were able to in this match with the one goal lead forced by the error early in this tie. Um, in a world where they have to go out and score again, and that first mistake sets the score back to a draw uh, or to a draw in game state, United still have the upper hand in that and they still have the opportunity to to play better. And, you know, I know a lot of people will say, looking at how United played out on that day, they, they wouldn't have had a chance either way. And to whatever extent that's true, it's I mean that's not that's never true. Played that way is because it's unfavorable. That's never true, right? Because once you get in that game state, you can't assess how how things would have gone beforehand. Um, But yeah, I generally agree. Let's go through it. Let's start with you know those first few minutes, and then obviously uh, a really ugly goal to concede. Right, that that opener. A lot of dialogue throughout the fan base and and amongst other fan bases, I'm sure, about who's at fault there. Uh, whether it was De Gea or Maguire or, I don't know, somebody else I, I, I suppose you could blame. Uh, wh- what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'll start by saying I went into the match expecting a wretched performance from the first whistle, just based on what I'd read and heard about it. And I began to think, you know what, this isn't actually that bad. It's a little more vertical than I would like for a game against a vastly inferior side to be. But... Nothing is going terribly wrong. Um, and that was until, what was it, the eighth minute when, you know, De Gea passes it out, Maguire fails the clearance, and Sevilla score. Um, on that goal. So, let's start with Maguire. Maguire took, I think Maguire got more of the share of the blame than De Gea for this goal. Um, and... While I don't agree with that, I think there's a simple solution for Maguire here, which is if you cannot deal with the situation that you're in, just boot the ball clear. It's fine. United lose the ball. The score's nil-nil. We're fine, right? And this is the thing we saw with Erickson earlier in the season, and I think I said the same thing, right? A lot of people want Erickson to turn out of pressure or Maguire to turn out of pressure. De Gea's hit the ball poorly. He's hit it. The ball is slowing down into Maguire's feet. So he's going to have to pull off an exceptional turn and then touch it out of feet. Like even the best midfielders in the world will make mistakes in situations like that if you put them in those situations multiple times a game, multiple times a season. But Maguire can clear it. He doesn't have to try and make the pass to Wambasaka if it's risky. He should have been able to read that it was risky. There were three guys closing in on him. He should have been scanning to know that. He shouldn't have called for the ball, but also I think, you know, if De Gea had made a better pass, this wouldn't have been as egregious of a situation to call for the ball in. Um, yeah, I think... But ultimately, there's no excuse for not clearing it. Yeah. So uh, that's the first place to start. I, I think you raise a good point with the clearance thing. You're right, you could just boot it and this wouldn't have been an issue. But I think, for me, I agree. De Gea is, more, is the person who is most at fault here because he's the one who can see the whole pitch. It doesn't really matter that Maguire calls for the ball because De Gea is in a situation where he can assess whether he should actually be passing the ball to Maguire. However, I actually think De Gea's big mistake here is the weight of the pass, like you mentioned. I think if it's a stronger pass, it takes Maguire straight into space without him even needing to do much. However, I also think a big aspect of this it, anytime something like this happens, it, you know, there's multiple things going on. Maguire should know, like, when it, the fact that Maguire is calling for the ball, I feel like should have been on the basis that 
he had nobody behind him. So if the ball was, the pass was strong enough, it would have taken him into the space. However, the ball came and then he had two guys pressing him facing his, you know, chest, which meant he should have known that there was nobody behind him because that, that's the basis upon which he was calling for the ball to begin with. So I do think it is a pretty big, it's totally like cracking under pressure. I think it's totally just like his brain turning off and, and, and making a decision-making error there. Um, obviously, the the fault still lies with De Gea, but it, it is really unfortunate how poorly Maguire deals with these things. I really, it hurts, uh, you know, it, 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 ultimately, I guess the point I'm trying to make is we need to get rid of all of the players who make these mistakes. Um, like we need, because even if you get rid of De Gea and you get somebody who can, you know, play on the ball better in these situations as a goalkeeper, that'll make a huge difference. This, you know, maybe you don't concede this goal, but as long as you have somebody like Maguire making that spatial mistake, that spatial awareness, you know, error, there's going to be risk of these things happening. And really you need to have no yeah. risk of these things happening. So it, it's unacceptable yeah. for both of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think you also kind of have this issue with, I think you have this issue with all of United's defenders, except for Lissandro, really. Um, and I, and, and going along with that, I think having Luke Shaw at the back against Brighton made a huge difference because he was actually able to, he's really comfortable receiving the ball and playing out of pressure. And it showed in the confidence with which United possessed the ball at the back against a team that I would say on a week to week basis, presses better than Sevilla. Way better. Um, yeah. Brighton pressed better in this match than Sevilla passed pressed in in that Thursday match. We just played through it a lot better. Um, not, not to say that we played through it particularly well. We still had trouble with it, but yeah, so, and and I mean, I don't want to make this about something it's not about, but, you know, I, I see a lot of talk about how you can compensate for having one, you know, player who's not as good in possession by having another one who's really good in possession and stuff like that. But I think ultimately the best teams don't just don't have players yeah. who do this stuff. And, you know, having that level of technical ability is not something you can substitute for. Um, no matter how good you get in other areas, like you, you have to be absurdly good at other things to compensate for not being able to receive and turn on the ball at center back, fullback, central. Uh, I don't really think um, there's any degree of good. You can be at other things to compensate for it. I think ultimately that's where I'm at with it. Um, like, yeah, very um, possible. Um, I, I don't want to harp on that too much cause we've, we've made multiple episodes about that, but I just thought it was worth connecting at this point yeah. in the conversation. Oh, so I think. Two things you brought up have connected pretty directly to some questions we had from some some of our listeners. First question was from Amity, and it was a, a, essentially asking, who would you go with as the center-back pairing going forward uh, the rest of the season? Uh, would you reintroduce Maguire, or are you sticking with this Lindelof-Shaw pairing that seems to fare pretty well against Brighton? It's a good question. I'm not particularly bothered about whether it's Maguire or Lindelof. I think it should just be a merit basis. Like, I think at his best, Maguire is a better player than Lindelof. I think right now, Lindelof deserves to play. I think it's been a long time since Um, you could fairly claim Lindelof is a worse player than Maguire, I think. That's fair. And he was actually very good in the the game today, I thought. So, yeah, right now, I guess I'm picking Lindelof and Shaw. 
Um, I'm definitely not picking Lindelof and Maguire is what I'm saying. I would definitely play Shaw. Yeah, I and I would bring Malasia back in at left back, coinc uh, or or con- con- consequently, consequently. consequently. <laughs> um, um, hold on, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna stop you there. I'm gonna ask a follow up. The specifics that uh, Amity specifies pretty clearly that she wants to know about how you feel about the opportunity cost of losing Shaw at left back by playing him at left center back. So, and and, I think you're maybe about to touch on that. I'm not sure, but it's a fair point. Um, Essentially to elaborate upon that for people who might not understand, we we talked to Amity a fair bit. Yeah, Amity is a friend of the pod. Yeah. um, So, so for others who may not understand what we mean by opportunity cost there, just to be super clear, the idea is that pl- playing Shaw at center back means that United cannot play Shaw at left back. Shaw is one of, if not the best left back in football right now. And he offers a certain amount in attacking areas that Malasia, as good as Malasia, I think has been, especially of late, um, cannot match. Um, I think my answer is that overall, a team with Shaw at center back and Malasia at left back is better than a team with either Maguire or Lindelof at left center back and Shaw at left back. So whether there's, there is an opportunity cost associated with having Shaw at center back instead of left back, but the aggregate team quality is still higher that way I agree. than it would be with Shaw. At I left agree. Back. I also think the, this is funny. Uh, let's start from the beginning here. I used to think that all of the dialogue around left-footed left center backs having better angles than right-footed left center backs was over, like was exaggerated. The value in it. I used to think that there were ways in which right-footed left center backs benefited from their right-footedness that offset those the you know the the value in having a left-footed left center back. And this is actually something I argued with. Uh, another friend of the pod, Mark Penrose, pretty pretty frequently. Uh, Mark uh, works for Shamrock Rovers. He's a he's, he's got some really great content on his his Twitter page. If you want to take a look at it, guys. I don't even know if it's I don't even know if it's public anymore. But Mark is one of the smartest people I've ever met on the app. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, something I used to argue with him about quite a bit was I I felt a right footed left center back could be just as successful as, as a left footed uh, left center back. I no longer feel that way. I think it's pretty clear how how beneficial was specifically when you're going to play a high volume uh passing game and you're going to try to play out from the back how beneficial having that that ang- those angles are uh and so i think having shaw is sort of sort of a no brainer because he's so talented on the ball and strong enough defensively to 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 mitigate any any concerns you might have there yeah i somewhat agree but I think more importantly than the footedness is just how much better Shaw is than both Maguire and Lindelof on the ball, at least this season. Um, like if Shaw was equally as good as he is now and right-footed, I think I would still have the same opinion. Mm, I'm not so. sure I would. I'm not sure. If Dallow were as good as Shaw is on the ball, I don't think I'd play him at left center back. You're right, but I think that's different. Shaw is like a, Shaw is a better defender than, than yeah. Dallow. He's a better one. Um, I don't think that the difference is so big that it, 
it changes the conversation for me. But anyway, I think we've covered this topic. Interesting. I think we both agree. Definitely Shaw at center back. For me, it's Lindelof at, at right center back. I, I really think I've had a lot of patience with McGuire. I do think McGuire at one time was a was a no, very it's good done. player. He, he can't he can't He's be done. starting matches. Yeah, it's done. It's over. Um, um, I. Yeah, he he would have to come in and play better than Lindelof has been playing for me to change my mind, basically. Yeah, and, and that's not happening. I, I, I don't really think he should see much game time the rest of the season if we can avoid it. You brought up another topic that reminded me of a question that we got from Womp Womp, who was formerly known as... Uh, I, I feel bad for not knowing his name because he's lovely. I, I, I do as well. Interacts with us all the time. I do time. as well. I just I, I know he's changed his screen name from I think Big Bird is my hero, but he has he has a real name who's which, which I'm forgetting and I apologize. Um, anyway, his question: Does the inability to play out of the back, even against a side like Sevilla, concern you at all beyond player capability? Is there something in the coaching or just DDG and anyone not Lisandro just as a fail? Um, yeah. So how much of the Sevilla? Failure, do you think, is down to personnel versus management? Um, I'll, I'll give my answer. Okay, so... In short... Yeah, go ahead. This was almost all on player failure. Because Sevilla's press was not particularly sophisticated, and United, for the most part, didn't have that much trouble playing through when it was when the ball was with more technically gifted players. I'll say that. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, first of all... Um, Big Bird is my hero slash Womp Womp. Please, you ask us questions a lot. You interact with us a lot. Please, if you're listening to this, remind us what your name is if you want us to refer to you as something else. Next time we Otherwise, you will eternally be um, Womp Thanks Womp. for... <laughs> yes, um, and thank you so much for listening to us. Um, secondly, yeah, um, the, pl- the personnel thing. It, it is totally personnel. Um, I don't think this is a coaching issue. I don't think Ten Hag is coaching a bad build-up scheme. However, I don't necessarily think that Lissandra being available fixes this problem. I just think... Like, ultimately, whether Lissandra is playing at left centre-back or not, De Gea is passing to Maguire here for the first goal. Maguire is playing right centre-back. Um, I guess you could argue maybe Lindelof doesn't cause this, but that's a that feels like a different debate because Lindelof also played in this game. Um, and then on top of that, um, once there there have been games where Lissandro has played where United have gone into these losing game states before against a press, and Lissandro hasn't been able to fix the problem. So as much as I so I I do think it's a personnel issue. I agree on that. I don't think it's a coaching issue, but I think it's. I think it's bigger than just having one center back out and having to play another This one. goes back to what we were just talking about, which is this isn't a personnel failure in that we don't have enough good players at the back. It's that we have too many players who have flaws at the back. It's a weak link conversation as opposed to a strong link conversation. You don't bring in Lisandro and he fixes this. You fix this by removing the players who are liable to these failures. And I think it's pretty hard. The rest of this performance is really poor against Sevilla, and I think we're going to get into why outside of the playing out from the back. But the real issues with the playing out from the back wasn't that Sevilla had us pinned the whole match. It was that there were these really key errors that led directly to goals and as a result change in game state that affected everything else. And those two key moments were De Gea. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so we've talked a lot about United's recruitment, who they should sign in the summer, some of the major um, quality gaps that exist between United's squad and City or Arsenal's squad, um, and the main ones being the age profile of the squad and the ability of the squad on the ball, particularly under pressure. Um, combining all of those topics and something I was talking about earlier in the week is United are going to hopefully go and get a striker, a center mid, and a goalkeeper, possibly a right back. Beyond those first three positions, one thing I would like to see is just a number of good players who are young joining the team and being part of the squad so that you just get more good players playing regularly in the team. I I, I think this is like an underrated thing. When, you know, when someone like um, Ben White is out for Arsenal, they bring in Tomiyasu. I don't think Tomiyasu is a particularly stand-up player, but he does have the ability to just play under pressure, and he is a strong defender fundamentally, and he's quite young, so he can adapt and he has the physicality to play in different pressing systems. And that helps them because it gives them flexibility and it gives them resilience in the face of injuries. And I don't think United have enough players like that, basically. Technical floor. It's the, it's the, it's the whole same, yeah. it's the whole conversation with the added detail of yep. the best way to cheaply ensure high tech, technical floor is young players who can then grow into starters. We could have this conversation a awesome. times. Um, let's talk about the rest of the city of match and then let's move on to Brighton. Sure. I felt a huge issue in what we saw against Sevilla was just a general lack of forward quality. We got a couple of questions. I was yeah. about to say that. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, when United need to break down these teams and the game is not transitional, and particularly when Bruno and Rashford aren't available because they're really good players, you just see where the shortcomings are coming from in attack. So besides technical quality, I just don't think United have the level of attacking ability to beat these sides outright. Um, I think this is something we've seen at times with Arsenal this season. Um, I don't think this is something you ever see with City, which is why they win the league so much. And it's not because City don't struggle to break down teams. Everyone struggles to break down teams. But when you have the best players in the world, they're just better at it. Um, And when you're playing players like Martial, who is just not good against these teams, Sancho, who is so far off a time when he was good against these teams, and Anthony, who's playing well, but A, he's one guy, and B, he's not Mo Salah or, you know, Erling Haaland. Yeah. you just struggle compared to those teams, and it's it's part of the reason why United don't have that level of like zest that those teams have, where they just have these spells where they blow away teams, and they also have these spells where they're not playing well, and those players just bail them out. Um, if you don't have Bruno and Rashford, you don't have that at all, and even with Bruno and Rashford, I don't think you have it at the same level as those teams. Yeah, so. I agree with that. I'm going to disagree with you here, though. I don't think this was a breaking down issue. Because I think Sevilla were pretty much wide open for, until the third goal. I, I think they were... Interesting. I think this was the kind of match where you'd expect Martial to have a big impact. It's just, he's killing you off the ball. Like, what he's giving you in possession off the ball, as in, you know, r- goal-scoring runs, it, it's just awful. Sancho has really looked very poor in this Sevilla match. I think he, he looked better against Brighton, but it's still not enough. You need him to break games open, not just 
do his job. Um, uh, and yeah, I think Anthony was actually quite good against Sevilla, but he's one guy, and you're right, he's not Mo Salah. So I think for me, this is just this isn't even necessarily a profiles issue. This is just like these guys are not good enough. And and I no uh, I and, and no, but I know you agree, but I, I want to get more specific about this. We got a question. And I quote, can Sancho be saved or is his lack of dog terminal? <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I'm starting to think it's terminal. Even if he plays as well as I think he can, I don't think he's going to crack these games open. And, and that's what we need him to do. And that's really what, what worries me. Because even if you just do what you're supposed to do, that's not enough. You need players who do more than, their, than, than the basics. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say, really. Because I, I think for me to be able to explain to you what conditions would make Sancho better, I need to understand why he's not playing well now. And it just feels like he's just not doing anything. Like, does that mean, like I just feel like he's not doing anything. Do something. I, I have talked about how, you know, you get floor raiser type players like Bruno and Rashford who have been really important to United because when United aren't setting them up to do anything, they make something happen. And then you have ceiling raisers who are the players who allow United to get to a state where they are more consistently making things happen at a high level. And I've talked about how Sancho is a ceiling raiser. That's all well and good, but he still needs to do something. Like he still needs to get on the ball, make an impact, um, make incisive creative passes, take risks. Um, and actually pull them off when he takes risks. It just seems like he's playing within the player that United signed. And I can't explain to you why, so I can't tell you whether he's going to get back to what he was or not. Like, whether it's an athletic thing, I wouldn't be surprised. If it's a mental thing, I wouldn't be surprised. But I don't feel comfortable speculating because I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess what it comes down to is, is, is it possible that Sancho winds up being the player we expected him to be? It is still possible, yes. Do I think it's likely? No, I no longer think it's likely. It depends on what you expected him to be. True. If you expected him to be one of the best players in the world, I don't think he's going to become one of the best players in the world. But I think that's more dispositional than what we're talking about here. I think that's because he's perhaps not as good on the dribble as you know a lot of people thought, even at his best. And that's something that I think you were familiar with, Case. Um, and, you know... He's also, I don't think, as um, as good of a ball striker as his mm. Bundesliga numbers made him appear. I think he had a really green um, overperformance on his XG and XA. And I think that had to do with a couple things. A lot of his shots going in, in in what was a lucky finishing streak. Maybe the transitional nature of the team he was playing in and the league he was playing in leading to chances that he's better at scoring. And most importantly, the fact that a lot of his passes were to Holland who finished his chances at an absurd rate, which makes his assist numbers yeah, go he, up a lot. He always um, wildly overperformed expected assists in the Bundesliga, even when Holland wasn't there. And Holland wasn't there for even his best season. So I don't know if I'd write it up to that. But Interesting. Yeah, I mean... No, it's not just that, but in, I think they had... Your assists versus expected assists is largely has largely nothing to do with the player who's making the passes. Uh, it's just... It's a lot of luck. Uh, obviously... There's also there's, something there's also something to be said about Lucien Favre, who was managing Dortmund at the time. I'm pretty sure his teams have a record of overperforming expected do. goals. It's really uh, I don't know yeah, why. Ashwin Rahman wrote a uh, a 
piece about this, you can find him at Ashwin Raman on Twitter. Uh, many, many years ago, that I still think the reasoning holds up. U- ultimately, I, I'm not going to lie. I think in Favre's case, it's mostly variance. Like, it, it's just a weird quirk. It's a thing that happens. Statistically, you're going to wind up with a manager who has this happen. Um, there's obviously certain things you can do that could make this occur, but th- th- that's how I look at it. Anyway, for whatever reason, I don't think Sancho is systematically overperforming his expected goal contributions in the way Holland was. So, like, if you're looking at Holland's numbers now and forever, I think he's likely to overperform his XG. I don't think you're going to find that with Sancho. So, his underlines were still good, um, but you had a player who had good underlyings with best-in-the-world level overperformance. And perhaps an overestimation of his ability to floor teams when he was not contributing to goals and assists uh, because of things like dribbling, being able to run at teams, the transitional nature of a lot of the situations where he made impact instead of being in settled possession. And I still think he can be an impactful player. I, I No, let me rephrase. I still think the, the Sancho that United signed was an impactful player who had the potential to be very, very good. I just don't think he's one of the best talents in world football. So if that's what you're expecting, no, I don't think he'll ever reach that level. Do I think he can be a good contributor for United? Yeah, I still think he can. I don't know whether he'll ever be a starter. I'm beginning to think no, because he's playing in a position where Rashford is clearly ahead of him, and I don't think he's going to catch up to Rashford the way he's playing. I also think he might be less promising than someone like Garnacho. so... Yeah, I mean, but I do think he's contributing enough to be a squad player at this point. I know he's not really making an impact, but if he if he can if he can I I haven't completely lost hope that he could be a valuable player at this level. I just don't think that's what United signed him for. They signed him to be one of the best players in the division. I agree on that. I I don't think he has the athletic ability to be as good or better than Rashford. Uh, certainly not in wide areas, playing as a winger. That's a huge issue because I don't think Rashford is elite relative to the rest of the league. So if Sancho can't be better than a player who I don't think is quite as good as you need your best player to be, that's a problem. I think that's that covered, right? Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. As for the Sevilla match... Do you want to talk any more about De Gea, or do you, do you think this is covered? I, I, I tweeted after the, the Sevilla match. Obviously, I was frustrated, but I, I still stand by this. Earlier in the season, I was like, oh, it wouldn't be so bad if United just extended De Gea so, so, as long as these other things happened. I'll be really upset if after he's cost United so dearly, they go and extend him now. It would speak to issues with process. That, that would be really concerning. Yeah, I've had I've held that view for how many seasons now? I I don't know. I don't really want to talk about this anymore. I think my my point of view is clear. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's move on to a happier topic. Brighton match, obviously not an amazing performance, but how would you rate this in terms of how United played? It wasn't that bad. Probably a seven out of ten. Maybe that's generous. Maybe a six out of ten. <laughs> Um, it, it's, it's the best United have played against Brighton in a long time, I would say. Um, and the reason for that is not because they were good or they dominated the game, 
but I think they were able to better manage the threats that Brighton pose in this version of this fixture than they have in the past. Um, they didn't buy into Brighton's bait. Um, what I'm referring to there is Brighton, their build-up system more than any other team in Europe, I think right now, is based on the fact that they try to they try to will you to press them and then play out of it very, very successfully um, into situations that have a lot of space. Um, I, I, That's the best way I can explain it in a sentence. I don't think I want to spend 10 minutes talking about how Brighton play, but if you watch them under Deserby, I'm sure many of our listeners have watched them under Deserby. Um, if you haven't, I think they're a great watch. They're really, really good and really, really extreme in how deep and how short they play passes in very, very deep areas in order to draw the other team into pressing them. And then they play through it with almost, like, almost unbelievably so. Um, They also are really good at pressing, so they're good at the other side of the coin. Like we said earlier, you know, they're one of the most effective pressing teams in the Premier League. Potter was coaching super sophisticated pressing systems when he was at Brighton. They would almost do different things every week depending on the opposition and execute it almost on a week-to-week basis. They were an incredibly well-coached team, and I think that's largely continued under Deserby when you have that level of player competency and coaches that have the will or the desire to press that high. I, They've basically continued that. And in past versions of this, when Brighton were under Potter, United have really struggled with both of those aspects of the game. They've allowed Brighton to win the ball high up a lot of times, which has led to defensive breakdowns. They have tried to press Brighton and then been sliced apart, particularly by Robert Sanchez, who's playing a goal. He's been on the bench lately for Brighton. But there were so many versions under Solskjaer, Rangnick, and even earlier in the season under Ten Hag, where United would press them and then, you know, one or two passes would just undo United entirely. And by not falling into those traps, it just became very almost end-to-end match where United would win the ball slowly get their way out of Brighton's press, get to the other end of the pitch, lose the ball, and then Brighton would slowly do the same thing, which is not how you want these games to go, but much better than the alternative, which is chaos at both ends um, to Brighton's benefit. Yeah. So I looked at this game a little differently. I think the way you can conceptualize what happened here is similarly to what you were saying. It's, it's, you can define it based on the pressing phases, right? I think United were the worst side for most of the first half. And that came down to the fact that United went really high up the pitch with their press, but then didn't back it up. And it made it very easy to break the press, transition quickly, create you know danger in United's... Uh, really enter United's third at speed, which is always a dangerous thing, no matter how many numbers you have back. Later on, I felt... United's best phases of play came after Fred was reintroduced, and Brighton had a lot more trouble playing through that high press when United did choose to press. I think we've actually got a stat from Mark R. Stats on Twitter. United had no high ball wins, which is to say ball wins within a 40-meter radius of Brighton's goal. They had 10 such wins in the second half. They had none in the first half. The majority of those happened after Fred came on. And I really think that this was really a a match defined by these pressing phases. And I think that shows it. So I'm interested to hear that you say that you don't feel United fell into the trap of pressing Brighton. Because I think in this instance, United 
did try to press Brighton, but they had a more coherent approach for phases than they've had ever before. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't feel that, especially early on, I didn't feel that they were pressing Brighton all the way to the goalkeeper, mm, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think all the way to the goalkeeper, not always, but I think from... I can remember three distinct instances where United's entire front five was camped just outside their 18-yard box in pressing phases. Do you think that they executed worse, or do you think that United executed better in the press? In terms of United's pressing from their build-up phases, I think they executed exactly as well as I'd expect them to early on, which is why they were winning the game. Or, or, or not winning the game, but outperforming United. And I felt that way for the most part until Fred came on. And then I think the game changed pretty drastically after Fred came on for a, a spell. I think I actually texted you maybe a minute or two after Fred came on. I was like, we're going to swamp them now. And then there was a, a pretty long phase where we yeah. did have control of the match after Fred came on. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it, it does make that, that does make sense. It's one of those things I think if I watched it back, I would I would have a much clearer idea. Yeah, I mean, these are the kinds of things where it's tough to notice them on first viewing unless you... Like, really, unless you get lucky. Yeah, that, that's my read on this. Um, but I agree with you. Historically, United have gotten killed uh, trying to press Brighton. I think the real difference this time was that the fact that United went long against them. I think the real trap was trying to play short. I think that's why United lost to Sevilla. Sevilla isn't as good of a pressing side as Brighton. For that reason, United tried to play through them, and it cost them because they have... United didn't have the personnel to play through them. Here, United don't try to play through them for the most part. It prevents Brighton from getting those high ball wins. Brighton have to rely on these transitional phases, and United managed to limit enough of them and get a little lucky in their own box such that they didn't concede. That's how I look at it. Fair enough. Um, I I do think Fred... I, I would say one personnel issue that I've not liked the past few weeks is how little fred has played in these types of games um i think fred is both really useful um as a in general as a player in a pressing team um i mean you can argue whether united are a pressing team or not and we tried last week after uh, after john's question but a lot of united success this season has been has been resulting ha- has resulted from being better out of possession um, and I think a lot of that has happened when Fred is playing. Um, and so I don't necessarily think he needs to play every game. We have talked about how important Erickson is. Casemiro is one of United's best players, but I do think it means he should play more than he has. Um, and when the team is not, when the person, when the personnel is not optimal to play at the best, that the team can play. I think Fred is a good player to insert in to try and fix some of the issues that are created. Um, And I think there have been games in the recent stretch where midfield has been torn apart and Fred didn't play. And I would have liked to see Fred. Yeah, I agree with that. I think a few things. This is, this is going to sound tangential, but I promise I'm going to tie it back in. I think city are the best team in football right now. I think the reason City are the best team in football has a lot less to do with what they do in possession than what it, than it does with what they do out of possession. I think if you watch City's big matches, 
against other top sides. The reason they come out on top, in particular this season, is because they are so much better out, out of possession than their opponents are. And that's true even against top opponents. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because I think Fred sort of plays into this, this conversation in that when United come up against a Brighton, for example, and Brighton's a really good team, if you're going to pick between, and this is what I think the, 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 the choice between Erickson and Fred is really, is a choice between whether we're going to be athletic and strong out of possession or whether we're going to be secure technically in possession. And I think if you're going to make that choice, when you're making that choice against a side like Brighton, personally, I think United are likely to have more success by trying to be that athletic, strong out-of-possession side than they are trying to be the technical, can-play-through-you kind of side, especially given the conversation we just had about technical floor, where United's technical floor is not that high. But I think their athletic ceiling, to, to turn make a whole pun out of it, is pretty high. And I think Fred is a good example of that. Uh, I would much rather go play a pressing phases game against Brighton than I would play a who-can-play-out-of-the-back best game. Uh, and I think that's what you do when you field Ericsson. Yeah, and United plays Spurs next, is it? Yeah. Yeah, so so in those games, for example, I think I would, I would, think I would play Ericsson um, because you're more likely to dominate those teams they're a lot more disjointed. I mean, Aston Villa have been very good lately, but they're not really high possession, high press kind of team. In those types of games where you're expecting that the other team perhaps is going to let you have more of the ball, you want Ericsson because if you have a player who's going to have 100 touches on the ball, you want Ericsson to have 100 touches on the ball, not Fred. But if your player is going to have 20 touches of the ball and have to run 12 kilometers, then you want Fred. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can, you can cook it down to that if you want to. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk. Let's actually let's talk a little bit more about the present before we we get away from it because this ties back into a conversation we had last week about pressing versus counter pressing. We explained the difference last week. That stat that I just brought up from Mark R stats on Twitter really speaks to counter pressing as much, if not more, than it does to just plain old pressing. And last week we had a conversation about something John McKenzie asked us uh, about, I think his exact words were something like, why do United fans pretend that their most of their upside co- doesn't come from counter-pressing? Uh, at the time, I think we sort of cast doubt on that thought. But then I think it clearly, I mean, United's best moments in this match against a, a good team were counter-pressing. What do you make of that before I, I chime in? It's a, it's such a difficult question to answer. I think the way I interpreted John's question, I think I said this last week, was that you know United, he he's associating with counter pressing teams as opposed to the actual act of counter pressing, which I don't think is United's greatest strength. Um, and so do I think United have a lot of the characteristics of counter pressing teams? Yes, and I think we saw an example of that today, right? A lot of the things like less focus on deep buildup, um, more focus on getting the ball in the other half, more focus on high regains, uh, more focus on, you know, rest defense, but also settle defense. I mean, everyone's really focused on rest defense right now, but I think it's, I think it's one of the things that Ten Hag has been 
extremely um one of the things that Ten Hag has really prioritized in his first season here, where I think other possession coaches might prioritize rest defense, but also prioritize things like deep buildup. Um, so yeah, in that sense, I, I get it. I just don't, I just think John doesn't mean it this way, but I think if I were to say yes to the question, I think I would give a false sense of, a false positive perception of how good I think United are at pressing. Yeah, I think that's what that, like, I don't think United are an elite counter pressing side. I don't think they are one of the best presses agreed, in the world. Um, I don't think that they're one of the best high presses. I don't think they're one of the best counter presses. I think they are very good at capitalizing on counter pressing situations. Which is a good thing if we're going to get to a point where United are one of the best counter-pressing sides in the world. Because I do think that's something that Ten Hag wants. If you if you look at a team like City, they are one of the best counter-pressing sides in the world. Um, I think United almost in many cases have players who are even better poised to take advantage of situations like that. I mean, less so in the Holland era of City, but I'd say pre-Holland... Um, I would argue that the current United team has some players that would make City better in transitional attacking situations or situations where they win the ball off a counter press. But then equally City have better players who are better at pressing. So yeah. you know, it's it's a it's a trade off. I'm 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 rambling. I, I think the point is I think United have potential to be very effective um in situations that result from counter pressing i don't think that they're currently one of the best teams at counter pressing yeah i agree with that i think i didn't mean to wind up having this conversation but we're gonna have it now because i've decided we are i think two things i think one john is right in that you know you have some players like fred and casemiro who are very effective at, at, at counter-pressing and recognizing counter-pressing opportunities and being efficient with them in terms of creating regains and, as a result, you know, goal-scoring opportunities. I don't know that United are systematically good at creating these opportunities, and I think that's a concern. And given that, it, it makes me think about a, a bigger picture thing, which is You have to imagine that, that this is happening internally, or hope, but they, they need to decide who, who they're going to be, what, what their idea, what the idea is of what this team looks like in final form, and where their goals come from, and where their strength lies, and how they beat other top opposition, and how they beat sides that are, are significantly less wealthy and less capable, let's say. I think the weird mishmash of players that United kind of have doesn't make that clear to me. Like whether this is going to be a a high possession side that's just not there yet, or whether long-term this is the team that wants to counter press uh, and and have its strength be out of possession. I don't know the answer. What do you think? So first of all, the, the argument of having players who are very good at counter pressing is an interesting one because I think United have some players who are exceptional at it. So, for example, Casemiro, Fred, Antony is another one who is very good relative to his position. Um, but they also have some players who I think are very much not. Um, 
I don't think Bruno's a particularly effective presser. I don't think Rashford's a particularly effective presser. Same with Martial. Um, same with Ericsson. And so, you know, when I imagine a team with personnel that's really well equipped to high press, I think of, for example, RB Leipzig, where like every single one of their players is a way above average presser relative to other players in their position at this level. Um, the second thing, whether United become more of a possession-oriented team or a counter-pressing-oriented team, firstly, I want to distinguish because, like we keep, like, I think it's easy to get in, get lost in this, like, terminology warp of, like, don't possession teams counter-press a lot? Mm, yeah. Because they do. Um, don't counter-pressing teams hold possession of the ball a lot? Yeah, they might. Not necessarily, but yeah, they might. Um, and so to distinguish, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the idea you have in your head here is like whether United are more like something like Pep City versus something like Klopp's Liverpool, which is not a, which is not a great, you know, not a great comparison to make as, as United fans of like, do you want to be more like City or Liverpool? Do you think we'll be more like City or Liverpool? But those are the two best teams of the last five to 10 years. No, the last five years, in my opinion. Um, and they, one played a supreme, like a super high possession system. And one played a relatively high possession system that was more focused on risk taking and possession and being able to press in situations where the ball was lost. Yeah. And I think what that boils down to was strengths in the squad, in the two different squads, as well as the nature of the two coaches and how they see the game. Um, and I think both are viable winning strategies Unless, like, I think if your squad reaches a certain level of ability that I don't think United will reach, which is where City are probably at, it it begins to become more beneficial to just hold the ball because your players can do things with that amount of time on the ball. Whereas, as you scale down on squad quality to something more realistic, like, there's no other teams in the world that have that level of, like, limited weakness and well-roundedness on the ball. And that's where you get to teams like Liverpool that are still absolutely exceptional. Um, in their recent seasons, they had Thiago and players like that who were more possession-oriented. But the original title-winning Liverpool team had, you know, a Fabinho, Wijnaldum, Henderson midfield, which is not the same as the City midfield. I guess what I'm saying is a player like Ericsson, you know, we brought in Ericsson. Ericsson clearly in some ways fits this vision of what the team is going to look like going forward. What does that tell us about what weaknesses will be accepted versus will not be accepted? Because I'll tell you this, there's no way Ericsson starts in an elite counter-pressing side, a side that's that's dependent as counter on counter-pressing as its key creation avenue. I, I, I He does not have the, the, the physical output that somebody like Tiago does. And I know that people don't associate Tiago with being this defensive dynamo, but he's actually, he's got very high defensive output. He moves. And Ericsson cannot do that. And so the question I'm trying to ask is, do you think we're going to sign more players like Ericsson who have really high-level technicality but physical deficits? Or is he part of a process where we wind up at players who have both? Or are we going to have a side that tries to compensate for his lack of athleticism with physicality in other areas? Which I think is a really bad way to go about it, by the way. Okay. 
Firstly, I think the Tiago thing is kind of confusing because we'll we'll talk about this another time, but basically I just think Tiago's one of the best footballers I've ever seen, period. Um and I think a lot of people who only watch English football or primarily watch English football don't know why I'm saying that. Um, because he hasn't actually played that much since coming to England, but he is absurd. He could play in a counter-pressing system. He could play in a possession system. He could play in any system he wants and be one of the best midfielders ever to kick a ball. Like, I honestly think he's amazing. Um, and we can get into why another time. But what you're seeing with Ericsson is a situation where you can't afford to buy that guy um, or, or that guy's not available, but you need you need to fix your midfield. So you bring in the best thing that you see available in the market of options. And so you take the player that has the technical some of the technical ability that Tiago has, but very limited, um, a very limited subset of the physical capabilities that a player like Tiago has. I don't necessarily think that's the template for what United want moving forward. I think it's just a, a calculated acceptance of what they can get and, and compromise. Um, what United should be recruiting is players who are like Tiago. They are good at everything. Like, if you if you watch Man City play, I think there's so much emphasis on the fact that these Pep teams outpass everyone and they're amazing on the ball and all their players can do amazing things. They're also unbelievably athletic. Like, you look at a player, like, I'll give you an example, Zinchenko. He played, like, 10 games for Man City. I don't think he's a particularly strong defender. I don't think he's a particularly strong attacker. But he is extremely technically able and he's extremely fit and can run and press and counter press for the whole game. Um, and that's the template. Like, that's why he's able to go to Arsenal and play 25 games in a title challenging team. Even though, like I just said, I don't think he's actually that good. I think he's elite in build up phases and I think that is really, really valuable. But, but he's elite in build up phases and, and out of possession phases because, or, or in early out of possession phases because, of how fit he is and how technically able he is, right? It's not it's not a it's not a convention of like I think he could be a very creative player because he's very good at kicking a football. Um it's not it's not as much about like you know um how how uh, how I'm 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 I can't find the word. Like it, it's it's not as much about what what individually he brings to the table it's about how that fits the mold of what they're trying to do which is recruit the most technically and physically talented footballers on the planet and mold them into complicated systems that outplay other teams and then they have a couple of star players thrown in the mix who differentiate them from the other top teams yeah like yeah i I hear you and if you want to compete with that you have to do the same thing like i i don't i don't see a way around it you can you can like, Arsenal have done the same thing on a cheaper budget. They've gone and said, how can we get players who are athletically able to play in our system and technically able to play in, in our system? And they've accepted whatever other limitations they come with. Like, I think Ramsdale has limited shot-stopping numbers. I think a player like Ben White is poor in the air. I think a player like Zinchenko, we just talked about him. Um, you know, Xhaka is super limited in defensive transition. But all of these players just... Are, are cogs in the machine. And so United need to have an idea of how they're going to play and then recruit to that. And I think that idea should be players who have 
both of these skill sets, basically. I agree. I, I, I see how we wound up here, but I, I was trying to direct us to a slightly different conversation, which was, I would say, what I was trying to get at is, and we were closer to this with the whole City-Liverpool thing, I think City and Liverpool made different choices about what kind of weaknesses they were okay with their players having. I agree with you that they generally pursued fitness and, and technicality, but I, I don't think they were looking at the same players. No, Liverpool's slightly different. Yeah, I would say, I, I said City right. and Arsenal. No, I, I better, think so, but this is originally my question was, what kind of team do you think, this, like, what is this going to look like in final form? What's the, or at least what's the plan? Because I, I think there's multiple different avenues. I think that, that'll make this summer really interesting and or concerning, depending on whether it's decipherable. Yeah, so I think if United are going to be a league-winning or league-challenging team, it's pretty likely at this point that Casemiro and Bruno, for example, are going to be a part of it. I think it's relatively likely that Rashford's going to be a part of it. Those are the main examples I can come up with off the top of my head right now. Um, and I think you're likely to see a striker come in who has some kind of limitation in a similar fashion because none of the strikers have everything. Um, the closest you're going to get is a seaman. I don't think he's Holland, for example. I think I don't think he's as good technically as someone like Erling Holland. And so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to have those limitations, and you're gonna try and build solutions to those limitations. And one of those might be counterpressing. However, I think City, I I think ten, I I think the way United use fullbacks, wingers, and midfielders is gonna resemble more what City do. Um, I think you're gonna see a lot of central midfielders getting into really advanced areas. Um, you're going to see a lot of fullbacks in midfield as a rest defensive thing. You're going to see a lot of high and wide wing play, which is why you see someone like Anthony joining. This is why you see players like Malasia joining. I think that suits players like Dalo more. I think you could argue it suits Shaw more, but he's just good at everything. I think the the squad composition, even though it in many other areas, it's a little more like Liverpool. I think what you're going to end up seeing is something a little bit more like how City played. Um, and specifically City in the first and second pep title wins, and less so the city teams now. That's interesting. I think I would go the other way around, but I think we spent enough time on this. I think I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. about that last part. Um, okay, interesting. I think I broadly agree with you. I think obviously the, the possession stuff is going to be more like city, just because we've already seen that. I failed to get this conversation where I meant to get it to, but I think it still wound up being interesting. So I'm going to try to come back. To, I'm going to try to formulate my thoughts more clearly and. We'll try to have this conversation in a few weeks again. I, I hope you guys enjoyed this either way, because I, I'm going to think about this more, and we're going to come back to this on another episode, because I want to really give this the time. <laughs> to anyway, that was a fail. Interesting one, though. I, I hope, <laughs> I hope it was. Uh, I hope what I said was not nonsense in either in either so. which way. Either way. Uh, penalties. Any thoughts on the penalties? We had a couple of questions about the penalties. I'll be honest with you. I am not an expert on goalkeepers, so if you want to talk about like technique, penalty taking, that stuff, I, I cannot speak to like run-ups. We had some questions about like how the opposition was taking run-ups against De Gea. Uh, what, a lot of them were short. I don't know whether Brighton recognized a weakness in De Gea's penalty approach that led to him being more vulnerable to short run-ups. I think that's unlikely. I think... The Estupinian took his in a long run-up. I think that was just how they were comfortable taking them. A lot of these guys are not traditional penalty takers. Non-traditional penalty takers, I generally find, have shorter run-ups. That's totally anecdotal, though. 
If you want more insight on that, John Harrison on Twitter. JHD Harrison one. He broke down the Villarreal United penalty shootout a couple years ago, I think. He's got lots of stuff on De Gea, all different kinds of stuff. So if you want answers to those questions, highly suggest that you go over there. De Gea's been a really bad penalty taker, uh, penalty keeper the last 50 penalties or so he's faced, whereas he started his career off, the first 35 penalties he faced, doing really well. I think I'm stealing that stat from John, actually. Well, okay, look, either way, here's the shout-out for John. There aren't many people I would listen to about goalkeeper ability, like, specific technical aspects of goalkeeping ability. This is stuff we don't talk about. Things about how goalkeepers physically orient themselves to st- to save shots, how they position themselves on the line, how they approach 1v1s. All really important stuff that Case and I don't understand, stuff that most people whose content you're listening to and reading don't understand. John understands. He works with goalkeeper data at a higher level than pretty much anyone on the planet. He works with pro goalkeepers. He's he's a great follow and the only person I listen to about penalties yeah, one of the few for sure here's so. the stat i was just poorly giving to you giving to you in a much better structure straight off of john's twitter de gea's top flight penalty record is quite strange de gea saved 10 of the first 35 on target penalty kicks that he faced which is 28.6 percent save rate an average penalty taker uh, uh or rather an average goalkeeper saves 17 percent of on target penalty kicks so that's very good from de gea his first 35 penalties that he faced since then, in, on, in 54 penalties on target, he's saved two, which is 3.7%, which is awful compared to that 17% average. So I think John has some analysis about the way De Gea steps. Uh, he, I think he takes, sometimes he takes negative steps when he's trying to save penalties, and that negatively affects his ability to, to save them. I'm, that's me trying to remember something he's said before, so go double-check me on that. But that, that's all I'm going to say about this because, A, ultimately it wasn't consequential, and, yeah, B, it, it's pens. I don't think this is the most interesting thing about the game, and I don't think it's generally the most deterministic thing about the game, and I don't know that much about it, so that's what I got. Yeah, another another thing I'll add to that is, I think John mentioned something about De Gea having a little bit of an uptick last season. So, before last season, I think you said... He saved two and fifty-two uh, of his last penalties. Um, before last season, he had saved zero in forty, um, ending in the Europa League final. And the odds of players, I believe, all forty were scored. Um, and the odds of that happening are in the like zero point zero 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 zero, like twenty zeros. I just did it. I just. I, it's 1.61 times 10 to the negative 25 out of 1. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay, enough on that. Uh, sorry if, if you're disappointed and you wanted to hear more about that. Go look at John's Twitter. That's what I have for you. Yeah, I went into the shootout pretty much sure that De Gea wasn't going to save a penalty. Um, He didn't. I don't want to talk about De Gea. <laughs> March, March, that that penalty is really bad. Um, United, United's players took great pens, which is nice. Thumbs up, boys. On to the FA Cup final. That's exciting. Could do a cup double this year. Domestic we'll cup see. double. That would be awesome. 
uh, especially if we manage to get third. In terms of big-picture European competition stuff, obviously it really hurts to get dumped out of the Europa League when we had such a good chance of winning it. I never want to see this team play in the Europa League ever again. That's how I look at it. Hopefully we never see this team play in the Europa League again. Hopefully it's Champions League from now on. But also, no matter what the Cups, if you if you play in three Cups in a season and get a win, a final, and a quarterfinal, that's, that's like a good outing. Okay. So, we've talked about the two fixtures. Let's do a little bit of Q&A before we wrap this up. For the midfield, what do you prioritize? Someone who can do both Ericsson's and Bruno's job, or Ericsson's and Casemiro's? This is from Calvin. I think this question is basically saying, you can only have one midfield during the, during the summer. What's the priority? Uh, somebody who can play in a deeper phases or in or higher up the pitch. Deeper. But, but I think... I think in the context of the conversation we just had about the the lack of cutting edge and forward quality, this is an this is a fair question. Even though I do agree with you that it's definitely deeper. Listen, Calvin, you got to ask some better questions. No I'm kidding. Um, so no, no, it's a totally fair question. Um, the reason why I say deeper is because I think there are other things United can do with their deeper players to get more attacking impact. But what they really don't have is someone who connects the defense to the midfield right now. Um, and why I think the question is a little bit, I don't think this was the intention, but the way it might seem is like Casemiro, Erickson and Bruno is like the scope. And I don't think that's true. I think what you need is a skill set that none of the three of them have, um, which is the ability to, we've talked about this so many times, pick the ball up deep under pressure, carry through or pass through the pressure. Which I don't think is what Calvin intended. And I do think the argument that you can boost the attacking ability of this team by upgrading on someone like Ericsson, who I know he has a lot of assists, but he's really overperforming his attacking output there. Um, I think that argument is fair. Agreed. Favorite pasta shape. This is from Will. Gnocchi. Oh, that's an out. Oh, is yeah, it the shape? Gnocchi is, yeah. Is it, is it the shape? No, no. Gnocchi's yeah. just round. Okay. Um... I don't know. What do you I'm going to say Bucatini, just because I really like Cacciari Pepe. I have to look that it's up. It's like a noodle. Noodle shape. I'm sure I've had it before. I just... Oh, okay. I mean, sure. I This it's is just like... It's like... It's like clear... It's like hollow spaghetti. It, yeah, it's, it's kind of hollow. It's like barely hollow, but it is hollow, I think. Um, I guess I, guess I could go with penne. Get ho- no, 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 no. <laughs> I regret asking this question. I just, I just, I'm just picking oh one. God. I'm just picking one because, like, who all cares? Right. Who cares? Learn something about take, you, Aaron. No, we're moving on. What was that? <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll do one more. Fusilli? This is a question. Is Fusilli <laughs> sure, okay? Sure, we'll take it. But now we, you've, we have already found out that you like Penny, so it's too late. Last question. Maybe. This is from Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't know that he asked this for this pod because he actually asked it many, many months ago to me and I forgot to bring it up. But I like this question. We're going we're gonna to do it. What have we learned this season? Since this winning run started, again, he asked this question a couple months ago, so you're going to have to ignore this part. We've basically not had the best 11 available for one reason or the next. The City match was on October 2nd. That was the first City match, the 6-3. We will have had nine match weeks, not counting the World Cup break, to address some of our failings and, and to instill more of Eric's principles. What might Eric have learned? He's no doubt been watching a ton of cities since the loss. Let's let's change the scope a little bit. 
Forget the second half of that. What have we learned this season given where we are now? What have we learned? What haven't we learned? I don't know. He asked this before the Derby. So now this is going into the FA Cup final? Uh, no, I, don't, I wouldn't put this in the context of City, even though it happens to be. I would just say, what have we learned? What did you think at the beginning of this season about the squad that we have assembled and your expectations? That has changed. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I think le- I'm going to speak less so from my perspective and more so from what I think everyone has learned Lame, about this but team. okay. Um, <laughs> because th- I think it's the best way I can approach this question. Um, so the first thing is, I think we had a lot of doubts about how good the squad is and some were confirmed and some were refuted. Um, the ones that were confirmed were reservations, I think, about, especially in defensive areas, the ability of this team to play out of the back. Um, I think under Solskjaer and Rangnick, United lacked the requisite, you know, tactical nows to be able to do this. But now that I think they do have some of the tactical elements that good teams incorporate in their build-up schemes, we're seeing that for sure they do not have the ability to consistently play out of the back against top opposition. And I think that level of technical, those technical shortcomings can apply in other phases of the game as well. One thing I think they refuted is this idea that they don't have fight. Or or I think that there is a there's an overarching mental issue with the squad, which is an allegation that I really didn't like last season because we had seen this team execute many comeback wins and many difficult wins and play through difficult scenarios um in difficult matches during covid play when members of the squad had covid and then suddenly a run of losses and everyone was like oh this team doesn't care about playing for the team um and i do think there were some there were possibly some bad apples and everyone knows what i'm talking about but i also think that there were many players who were genuinely very cut up by that and I think that the seeing that I, I, I just I dislike that we default to that so much in the way we talk about the sport. And we're seeing the same thing with Chelsea this year where people are like, oh, these players don't care. They don't want to play for Chelsea. And it's like, no, what happens is when organizations are dysfunctional and they're run by people who don't know what they're doing and there's no level of strategy, you're going to have people who don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And you're going to have people who know what they're supposed to be doing, but can't do it. Um, Having that level of dysfunction at board level is always going to make these players look bad. United can sign the United can sign great players, and I mean, for what it's worth, they won't if they have bad owners. But if they sign great players and they have bad strategy at the top, they probably won't win. They probably won't do anything. Um, and I think what we learned is that United might have deficits in quality with the top teams. They definitely do, but they should not and probably don't have something mentally that is preventing them from reaching that level. At least I don't think they do. Okay. Yeah, I I think I agree with your take that for the most part this was this is an unfair narrative. Uh, and yeah, we we I think as as a as fo- football watchers it's something that gets defaulted to too often. What when, when a team has systemic problems that it's it's mental and it's like something inherent about the players that is wrong and the players need to be replaced because they have a mentality issue. Whereas I think this is more to whatever extent these things are mental, which I think 
yeah, there, there is an extent. I think it has more to do with environmental stuff. And if you can change the environment, you a lot of these players are, there's nothing inherently wrong about their, them. That means they can never be part of a productive, positive mindset team. So yeah, I, I agree with that. I'll take this in a different direction. I'm going to do what I thought at the beginning of the season that hasn't panned out. Number one, I thought some of these pers- this personnel could play out of the back better than they can. Uh, for instance, I thought McGuire would be able to. I, I think clearly he can't. I didn't think De Gea was going to be as key as he clearly is. Yeah, I, I guess those are the key ones, I'd say. Uh, I did think we'd get to a certain level of comp. I didn't think we'd be going long in the FA Cup semifinal against Brighton. I'll tell you that much. And, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't have been. But I, it just speaks to the whole technical floor thing again. Otherwise... I thought we'd get more production from, in particular, Sancho. But I think just generally the forwards in the team. I, I expected if, if you told me we'd be as good as we are, as in, in progressed in as, so, in as many competitions as we had, and you know in, in the driver's seat for third place, I would be have been astonished when you told me some of the, the counting numbers that these players put up. Uh, that's been my big disappointment for the season. I, th- I think Sancho probably really. We've we've hit on both of those before though. Yeah, that's true. Otherwise, the only other surprise... Um, I, I, maybe I'm out. I think for the most part, things have progressed as we expected them to. Uh, maybe some things faster than others or slower. Yeah, it's always easy to say that. I think um, what what happens is things that are... There, I'd say there's three levels of events in football, right? From 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 anyone's perspective, there's the stuff that's explainable to fans, but not predictable. Nothing's ever predictable. If it was, we wouldn't watch. There's the stuff that's explainable, but we don't have the information required as fans to understand it. But other people might have that information. And then there's the stuff that we haven't yet figured out. The stuff that nobody in the sport understands. And... We're all just trying to navigate it. Um, and I think most of the events in football from an on-pitch perspective fall under category one of like, we could probably explain them, but we probably didn't foresee them. Like the two of us ultimately predicted United to finish sixth this season. Um, we we didn't, I don't think I would have predicted them to win a trophy. Um, I don't think I would have predicted Ronaldo to be gone by November. Um so, and I honestly, in the first episode, I don't even think we predicted them to sign Anthony Casemiro and the best of all, Martin Dubrovka. So how can you, like, all of these things make sense and are understandable. Um, they might not be logical, but they're understandable and make sense. And now we're like, yeah, you know, I could I could have foreseen it going that way, but you, there's still a number yeah. of ways it could have gone. And so we'll still always have these surprises. Like we're not going to do this podcast podcast for 10 years. And then by year 10, we're like perfect at telling you exactly what's going to happen. And that's what keeps it fun. Okay. I said that was gonna be the last one, but let's do one more. Cause I forgot that Casey asked us a really good question that I want to answer. His question was, do you think that United can afford to leave the right back position this summer and focus on other positions, given how Wambasaka has been better and Dallow is also still there, especially when other positions have catastrophic faults. I don't think it's the most costly thing 
but I would like to see a new right back, and I just don't really think Wambasaka should be playing regularly anymore. And I don't think anything he's done has changed my mind. As as much as I think he's playing well, like I think if he leaves now, he'd probably find Premier League level suitors, um, which I wouldn't have said at the start of the season. But his strengths just don't align with that of a right back in this system. And I don't think that's yeah, changed. Yeah, I'll put it this way. You're right. Definitely not the most cost, costly thing if we go into next season with the right backs that we have. I would still really prefer to offload Wambasaka. He played well today. But again, this is the kind of thing where United could not play through Brighton, so they didn't try to. And that when you're not trying to play through Brighton, you take the whole issue with Wambasaka out of the equation, which is he's a, a weak link in the network that allows you to play through sides. And so next season, if you're... I think all of us want to be able to play through teams. And if next season we're saying, all right, we fixed the other issues where that are preventing us from playing through teams, but we still have Wambasaka, he will become the key failure. Um, and he, we've seen this before. He, he does do this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's great that he can shut down Matoma. He's an incredible, incredible uh, 1v1 defender. There's no doubt about it. But this is again, this is a this is like a, a value choices thing. Does it matter more to you to have a player who can do that 1v1 defense, or does it matter more to you to be a good enough team such that you don't need to rely on that that skill? And I think I know what my answer is, and it's it's the latter. Alright, that's enough to call it a day. Another big win for United, and uh, I guess we'll see you next week, everybody, after Spurs and Villa. Looking forward to it. Have a good week, guys. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.